Hi, friends. That's what Scott Hanselman says whenever he starts a talk or a podcast. He's done over 650 episodes of his Hansel Minutes podcast that he calls Fresh Air for Developers. It's a tight 30-minute technology chat show that shares the same values that we do here at Greater Than Code. There's a huge library of guests for you to catch up on, and a new high-quality show every Thursday afternoon with a fresh face you may not have seen on other shows. So go listen to it. Yeah. After you're done listening to this one, because this one's going to be great. Go listen in three, two. One now. <laughs> Welcome to Greater Than Code, episode 144. This is John Sowers, and I'm here with Coraline Ada Emke. Hey, everybody. I'm glad to be back after a brief or extended hiatus, whichever way you want to think about it. I am super happy to introduce our guest today, Jameson Dance. Jameson is an engineering manager at Walmart Labs and the co-host of Soft Skills Engineering, a weekly advice show for developers. Jameson organizes React Rally, the first community React conference, which is going on its fifth year. He's a frequent conference attendee and occasional speaker. You can find him on Twitter at Jameson underscore dance, that's J-A-M-I-S-O-N, dance, or on the web at Jameson.dance. Welcome, Jameson. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. I've listened to a, a lot of these episodes, and it's kind of fun to be on the show that I listen to so regularly. Awesome. I think y'all are great, and you do great stuff. Thank you so much. So since you have listened to the show before, you know what our opening question is going to be. Jameson, what is your superpower, and how did you develop it? This question paralyzes me. <laughs> uh, my, one of my superpowers is not talking about how great I am. I, I think after a lot of thought, I ended up on moving swiftly between layers. So, so some amount of like context switching uh, is part of that, and some of kind of jack of all trades is part of that. My day job is a lot of moving between layers, uh, between code and people problems and planning and. Um, and then the stuff I do outside of my job is podcasting and running events and writing code for fun there. And I like to do a lot of different things. And I feel like I'm pretty okay at changing between them. Well, maybe not an expert at all of them. How did I develop it? Maybe like a lack of discipline. <laughs> so I can't focus on anything for too long and, and become an expert. Uh, I don't know. I feel like it's just born out of interest in a lot of different things. I don't know that I deliberately tried to develop it, but I'm stuck with it. How did that manifest before you got into tech? I think brief bursts of very intense obsession with hobbies that were then discarded. <laughs> That's kind of how it was manifested. I was exactly had a lot the same of... way. Okay. I feel that. <laughs> like what? What kind of hobbies did you do? Um, well, I read Cryptonomicon by Neil Stevenson and got into crypto for like a year. Okay. And sure. I got into Egyptology really deeply for a period of some years and taught myself hieroglyphics. And then okay. got to a point where I'm like, okay, I'm done. And moved on <laughs> to the next thing. <laughs> I've conquered hieroglyphics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, I yeah. also had that, that switching between topics, do a deep dive, then move on kind of thing going on it also sort of manifests in i would say i'm equally uncomfortable in lots of different social situations like <laughs> never super comfortable but i can switch between groups pretty well and that makes some things easy and some things hard there's there's some trade-offs there but it's kind of how i am so 
I imagine that's really valuable in your role as a manager to be able to switch and also to have broad knowledge as opposed to deep knowledge. It's super valuable. Yeah, part of being an engineering manager is context switching, but that's the job. Have both of you been engineering managers? I feel like both of you have talked about it on the show. Yeah, in a previous life, yeah. Okay. Yeah, Yeah, so you all know, like, your job is to be interruptible and, and deal with things as they come up to some extent so that people can focus, ICs on your team can focus. And there's that kind of programmer meme about don't interrupt me because I lose my train of thought and it takes me forever to get it back. And that's just the job as an engineering manager. So being able to switch context rapidly means that you can keep up with all the stuff that's piling up on you. Well, Jameson, Um, in my experience, that's also a characteristic or a requirement for a very senior engineer as well, because hmm. maybe 50% of my job is writing code and the other 50% is helping my team level up. So I have to be interruptible and uh, I have to be organized enough to always know you know, where I left off and what I need to do next. But I would argue that's not just a skill for managers. That's a valuable skill for anyone as they gain seniority. Yeah, that's a great point. I really like what you said about being organized enough to know where you left off too, because you're, you're pointing out that that's a skill that you can improve on. It's not just like someone tapped me on the shoulder so my day is ruined. If you're deliberate about kind of organizing your, your thoughts and, and moving on to another thing, then hopefully it's easier to pick up the context when you come back. Do you have any tools or techniques you use to do that to keep context around so it's easier to come back to things? I actually open sourced um, my organization system, my um, to-do tracking and note-taking and organization system. It's called LFTM, Low Friction Task Management. It's on GitHub at Coreline Ada slash LFTM. And um, lots of people are using it and they find it really valuable. And I'm super happy about that. And uh, I tried everything over the course of my career from like bullet journals and getting things done and OmniFocus and various new applications and nothing worked for me because they all required an app. So LFTM works in a tree structure that you keep open in your text editor. And as developers, we always have a text editor open. So we're used to that. And um, you sort of like use it throughout the day. It's not like a ceremony of like, oh, it's the end of the day. I better update this or whatever. You just track in real time whatever it is you're doing and whatever you have to do next. So you might want to check it out. It's the only thing that's ever worked for me. So I'm happy if other people can find it useful too. This is cool. I'm looking at it right now. Awesome. I'm going to click the little star button and just boost your ego in real time. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm sort of the opposite of that. For for those situations, I I just use Post-its or whiteboards. So if if I'm like leaving for the day and I want to remember where I pick up, um, if it's simple enough, I just write it on a post-it and put it on the monitor so I can't lose it because I have to get through that in order to get anything else done. Or um, if it's more detailed, like last night when I was trying to save state before I left for the day, I had to write a whole bunch of things out on the whiteboard in order to remember all the different things and which state they were in at the end but so I could jump back into it. This is really interesting because I was talking about this as a a thing important for management. Coraline pointed out it's it's important as developers get more senior. I feel like there's a rhetoric sometimes around things that are important for managers to do. And it, it seems like if you squint, they're all kind of the same as things that are important for very senior engineers to do. Like some amount of uh, kind of longer term strategic vision or talking to business teams or like... I feel like for almost everything that's part of a manager's job, you could say, yeah, a really senior engineer would be able to do that well, too. Does that resonate with you folks? 
Yeah, I would think so. Uh, you know, everything outside of like specifics of compensation and possibly performance management, but everything yeah. else, it's like mentorship and organization and communication and convincing and persuasion and being persuadable and all like all that stuff. That's why okay. I really get disappointed sometimes when like really good developers decide to move into management because I feel like they have a set of skills or the set of things that they're interested in. And they don't maybe realize that those things are valuable to senior engineers as well. And they think maybe the only way they can express that interest or develop those skills is by switching over to management. But we need more developers with good communication skills or with strategic vision and with mentoring abilities. And we need that as an industry, not just on the management side. Yeah, yeah. It certainly amplifies the impact of your technical contributions if you have all those skills, where if you if you don't have them, you're a little more limited to your scope. Yeah, and I think that goes back to the discussion of like having good ladders that split so that you can uh, ascend in management after a certain level or you can ascend technically in a certain level because if there's no if there's nothing past senior that isn't management then well that's where you go, right? <laughs> yeah, the the ladder is a funnel and turns out <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I was reading this post. It was talking about how we have this idea of parallel tracks at a lot of companies, but one of those tracks has the ability to fire the other track. So like we, we talk about how they're not promotions. Uh, they're, they're, it's not like one is more prestigious or powerful than the other. Do you feel like that is true in practice? Like how do you balance the different responsibilities with this idea that they, they are both parallel and equal steps up a ladder? Yeah. I mean, I think if the team is organized in such a way that the manager isn't a, the type of person that's wielding power, because they think that's what managers do and controlling things and, and being in charge, then yes, right. Then, then the technical discussions can be led by the technical experts and the people discussions can be for the people experts. You know, there, you're not going to be doing your one-on-one -on -one with the staff engineer, but I think it's dependent on a healthy environment. And really it goes beyond the team structure, I think, to what the company culture is. If the culture is about empowering engineers then I think you're more likely to have a successful parallel track. And um, you do have to think beyond the senior. People achieve senior level a lot more quickly these days than they did when I was coming up. And uh, I feel bad for 32-year-olds who are seniors and don't have a way forward, you know? Yeah, I'm 32. <laughs> <laughs> I'm stuck. <laughs> oh, no. That's an interesting point about the cost of, of maybe some amount of title inflation that's gone on as the industry has just expanded so much. What do you think the answer to that is? So so say you are 32, you've been uh, bumped up to senior engineer because everyone else is 25. What do you do now? To some degree, it's the company's responsibility to make sure that there is a way forward and that the responsibilities you take on as you become more senior are reflected in your title, reflected in your compensation. I think those are important things. But you did mention title inflation, and I think that's a reality. And I think it's a dangerous reality for the reason that we're not giving people a path forward. We're not giving them a way to continue to develop as engineers, and they're going to cycle out. We're going to lose their skills. So you're saying um, without kind of a clear path of what to do next, people might get frustrated that they don't know where to go from here and it feels like their career is kind of stagnating. Yeah, that's that's what I meant. That makes sense. Yeah, I felt that in the past cuz uh, you know, like like I started calling myself a senior engineer in 2003, 2004 
Sure. And, and then it was like my last title bump was when I became a manager, you know, earlier this year. So mm-hmm. it's like, that's a long time to spend at one level, even though my skills were leveling up and I was building up all sorts of different, you know, abilities. Um, but when you just look at that title and you see it not change for a long time, it, it can be demoralizing. Yeah, titles are weird. <laughs> They're real weird. So I worked at a startup early in my career. And I think I was, how old was I? I was 25. I didn't know what I was doing. And they wanted me to manage a team. And they said, hey, the title that goes with this team is director of engineering. I was like, okay, cool. Like I've got like five reports and I don't really know what to do with them. And I'll just kind of code all day like I did before. But I guess I'm a director now. And when I look back at that, I cringe so hard because uh, that's not what a director does. It was just startup Wild West of like everyone is making things up as they go along and titles don't matter. And But but it still has an effect. And there's probably someone out there who like looked at my LinkedIn and was like, oh, director, this guy really knows what he's doing. And uh, maybe I have to go put in an asterisk that says like, fake startup director not <laughs> a real experienced director but yeah titles are odd yeah i was uh yeah. i was a c-level at a five-person startup which basically nice. meant nothing you know i can say <laughs> yeah i got i got as far as c-level but it was i was a developer i wasn't managing anybody yeah yeah you yeah, had I all had of the, the titles simultaneously <laughs> yeah yeah, I had that same experience with a startup. They're like, you can pick whatever title you want. I'm like, all right, director of web applications, sure. And you know, like, I knew I had just made it up, so I like, I, I'm performing as a senior senior developer. Like, and no one reported to me, so I wasn't at least I wasn't like failing as a manager at that point. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but I I knew that like like that wasn't like a real title and it's not like the next job I get is going to be senior director at, you know, wherever. Yeah. Like, well, I've been, I've been a director. Time to be a VP. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if, if some of that is like, startups. I wonder if some of that is like a retention strategy or a hiring strategy for startups where title inflation is a way of attracting candidates. I know that a lot of companies are really bad about promoting people. And so there's this trope, like, if you want a promotion, you have to jump companies. And I think if a company is willing to offer you a director position or or something like that, or a senior position when you're still early career, that's attractive because it feels like progress, even though you're not necessarily qualified or you're not necessarily ready at that point in time for that kind of responsibility. So you mentioned you're not necessarily qualified do you feel like there's some kind of objective standard that, that would apply across companies that you could say this person is qualified in general to operate at this level? I wish so I guess we my had some standardization. Culturally, yeah, yeah, it's pretty vague. It is very vague. I do wish that we had some kind of like agreed upon standard, not necessarily formal. The way I see career adv- advancement as an engineer is ever-expanding circle of influence. So when you're early career, you're not really influencing anybody. You're developing your own skills. You're focused on personal development. By the time you get to lead, you're guiding projects, one project, maybe a couple of projects, and you're impacting the people who work on that sub-team or that, or that project or what have you. Um, when you get to principal, you're operating across team boundaries. And maybe as you become more senior as a principal, you're influencing the broader engineering organization. 
and you get to architect and you're expected to spend most of your time on cross engineering and leveling people up. And those are skills that take time to develop. You can't just throw someone into that role and expect them to be successful. I mean, you can, though, because <laughs> it happens a lot. <laughs> yeah, you shouldn't, <laughs> but you what shouldn't. I should say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting point where if I am motivated purely by career growth, it's possible I could end up in a position where I'm not set up to succeed and that would be detrimental to my career. So even if I'm purely thinking of self-interest, like I just want the most titles next to my name possible as fast as possible. If you do that and end up at a place where you're not capable of fulfilling that responsibility, it's probably going to cause some damage um, to you and people that you work with. I wish I could just send a broad message out and say, pace yourselves, friends, pace yourselves. Yeah. Yeah. It's like you've accelerated your ability to ascend to the level of your own incompetence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And because you haven't had the time to build that competence, like you haven't had been in those situations where you get that skill. And that's a terrible position to be in, right? It's not that, oh, you're not as good as this other person over here, or you don't have the same skills as this person who's been doing it for 10 years or 15 years or what have you. It's that mm -hmm. you're put in a position where you're not equipped to grow. Yeah, there's there's probably something tied in with imposter syndrome there where there's probably people who feel like that even when they are equipped to handle it. But it, it feels very different to be in a situation that stretches you and challenges you, but that you can figure it out versus something that you're just like going to get squished by. There's this notion called the zone of proximal learning. The series states a couple of things. One is that um, you learn best when you're given a task that you can almost complete by yourself. And parallel with that is you have to have peers who are also at your level of experience who also can't necessarily complete that task on their own. And that when you work together as two people who are challenged by a task, you're more likely to be successful than you are solo. So having that peer group of people who are developing the same skills that you are and growing the same way that you are is really important too. I think that's something you don't get a lot of in startup culture too. Yeah, I, I like that emphasis on on peer like support the idea about having your like pushing yourself like just slightly beyond your boundaries is um, also uh, appears in research into flow states where like the one of the reliable triggers of a flow state is you're operating like five to 10% beyond your current skill level. So it requires like your full brain attention in order to stay on that task and not mess it up. Mm -hmm. And so that's a, like an interesting way to think about it as, as a sort of way of motivating those deeper states of focus is as you're you're right at that limit of of what you can do i was going to ask you jameson what do you do as a manager to make sure that you are providing members of your team with those growth opportunities and with those challenges that will stretch them and help them learn and grow that's a good question the main thing i do is try to make it safe to communicate if you are feeling overburdened and, and squished, or if you're feeling kind of bored, we have some team values and safety is the first one. And I, I don't know, there's there's all that Google research on psychological safeties on teams. I believe you've talked about this stuff before on the podcast too, but I feel like that's the underpinning of a safe environment is an environment where you can make mistakes and, and learn and grow and admit things you don't know. And if it's not safe, then you're going to just pull in and, and protect yourself, which isn't conducive to growing. So that's the first thing I do. And probably the biggest one 
um, just make it so people understand that they can talk openly about how they're doing and try things that might or might not work. The other one is probably just kind of some amount of uh, modeling their skill set in my head and where they are and trying to deliberately pick things that I feel like are a stretch for them. This can go well or poorly <laughs> based on how good my model is, I guess, where it, it, it can you can sometimes pick things or, or guide them towards things that don't match where they are. But if you get it right, then it's really satisfying to see someone take on a task that you think they can do with some extra growth. And they maybe aren't sure they can at first, but end up pulling off. Uh, another thing we do is, so our team is fully remote. Um, everybody works, it's uh, all over the world now, actually, not just all over the US. So we don't sit in an office together, but we try to create a sense of camaraderie through having this shared video conference that's open at all times. People just hop in and talk. And most of what happens there is actually ad hoc pairing. We're not an XP shop or anything where we don't have um, strict requirements around pairing, but we do do a lot of just ad hoc pairing where everyone on the team, usually several times a week, will help someone else with the thing. And it all kind of works out where you spend some of your time pairing with someone on their thing and it evens out because someone else will pair on your thing. And I found that's very helpful for growth because it both lets more experienced people mentor very naturally, where uh, they just kind of lend their experience working on practical problems. And it lets less experienced people learn more clearly from working directly with someone instead of just feedback on code reviews or things like that. An interesting thing with that is experience or inexperience isn't like a binary. It's not like one person is experienced and the other person is not. It's uh, everyone has different overlapping subsets of skills. So by everyone pairing together, everyone kind of gets the chance to mentor on some things and everyone gets the chance to, to learn from each other on some things. I love the... Uh that creates lots of opportunities for latent learning too, right? I absolutely love this idea of like keeping a video chat open for your team. I've done some of that. My team was used to be all in all principles. And we, uh, we had a, um, someone who's like mid career to our team. My team has a lot of autonomy and we work independently. And I was afraid that she would feel very isolated. So we have actually like, just leave a video chat open, just the two of us while we're doing our work. So even if we're not directly interacting, at least as remote people, there's another human there. We can make mm -hmm. side comments to each other. Or if she says, damn, what's going on here? I can say, oh, can I help? There's a lot less friction when you get used to that than DMing someone on Slack or, or something like along those lines. Yeah, that's a great point about lowering the friction. Remote is awesome, and I prefer remote to in-person work. But I have moved away from thinking remote is better in every way than being in an office. And, and there certainly is, you lose some signal by not being around in person, where, like you mentioned, those little comments people make, or you can see their body language, or just walk by them in the hallway. So the constantly open video chat is an attempt to get a little bit of that back, where it's like, do you want to pretend like you're in an open office for a little bit and just kind of hang out while you work and be a little bit more distracted, but also a little more responsive to what's going on? And I, I found that's a good trade-off versus everyone just only communicating in explicit meetings or, or through chat. Yeah, that was, so I didn't invent that idea. That was from a person I worked with named Josh Crowther. So shout out to him for starting that. That helps our team be a lot better. What led you to start Soft Skills? engineering podcast how did you decide that you were the person who would give advice to developers <laughs> hey, hubris <laughs> uh 
yeah, when you put it that way, it's like, I don't know. I'm a doofus. I don't know the answer to things. Um, so I had been on a podcast for quite a while. I'd, I'd helped start a podcast called JavaScript Jabber and been on there for quite a while. And that one was very technical. It was very focused on kind of, we'll talk to the person who made this thing about their thing. And I found that interesting. But I also felt like the specifics of technology kind of fade away to become more tools and less the the point of the thing. Like, I really, really like some tools, but I feel like the time in my life where I will get obsessed with like a programming language or a framework is probably past. And I will learn new ones and use them and like them, but I'll never be like, I'll never like be a, a, a diehard fan of some new web framework or whatever. I'll just use it because I want to get stuff done. So that interest of like, I really want to know everything about everything technical coming out kind of faded. And the thing that was there, I'm thinking of like the waters receding and the land that's there underneath is I want to I want to talk more about how people interact and what kind of communication patterns they have, what kind of problems that they encounter, how they solve those problems. I, I guess I've always been fascinated by how people work together. And because I knew podcasting. <laughs> podcasting felt like a, a venue to explore that. I was on the show with another co-host, Dave Smith, and we both kind of had similar ideas. We were we were thinking we wanted to try something different and just branched out and, and started it. We had no goals about what we wanted to do besides talk to each other about it, which made it comfortable to start because we weren't trying to to like make a job or get famous or it was just we thought it'd be interesting to talk about the subject. Yeah, and that's actually not very different from the origin of this show. Yeah, a bunch, a bunch of us were Ruby Rogues, which did tend to focus on a specific technology, and the author of a new gem or whatever like that would come on the show. Yep. And it that's... is no coincidence that the same person ran Ruby Rogues <laughs> and JavaScript Jabber. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, there's and, a model uh, there. Yeah, and uh, I'm much happier now, and I I hope that the podcasts that we do and the podcasts like you do are helping people more because if I want to learn how to, how to use a new Ruby gem, I'll read the readme. I'll read a blog post. I'll watch a conference talk on YouTube or whatever. I don't need a radio station to tell me about a gem. That's not a way that I'm going to learn anything practical. And even if I yeah. did learn something practical, that's not the optimal way to learn it. I think the lasting lessons that we get are by talking to people about, like you were saying, you know, what what are they struggling with? What are they learning? What are the tools that they're using? And it comes down to those human interactions. I think the human interactions are fascinating. And we can learn more from those and become better developers by learning more from those than we can by learning about a new JavaScript framework. Yeah. I mean, I do think those shows are valuable. And, and I think they serve an important purpose. It's just that I'm personally less interested in them than than in talking to people about people things. The So that, that was kind of the motivation for doing something different. The idea for the format. So the format is uh, an advice show where people write in with questions and we answer two of them every show. And that came, I think, because I'm a fan of the My Brother, My Brother and Me podcast, which is a it's a comedy advice podcast. <laughs> they answer questions from listeners and, and the format felt interesting and also maybe a little bit less. It, it felt a little too arrogant to just sit down and say, now Dave and Jameson will explain how things work. Like, I don't know everything. I, I, I don't have in my brain this like grand unified theory of, of soft skills, but being able to help people and talk through their problems feels like a thing that is more focused and also I don't have to have as big of an ego <laughs> to do it. Like I can listen to people and talk to them about what I think they should do. 
instead of just spout forth the right way to do everything from first principles. And I don't think I would still be doing it if it wasn't for the format. It, it feels comfortable to do this now. So you've been doing this podcast for at least uh, a couple of years now, right? Mm-hmm. And and you've got two questions that are coming in every week that are coming from all over the world at this point. You have a pretty big reach. Um, and it seems like you have a really interesting breadth of, of people coming from different contexts uh, with probably questions that you would never think to ask. Um, so tell me about some of the, how that has uh, informed what you understand, you know, working in technology to be like. The biggest thing is that my experience is such a narrow keyhole view into what it's actually like for all developers to work. Like I've worked in the same state my whole life. I've worked mostly at small startups, though not exclusively. Never worked in government. Uh, I'm a white male, so that has a lot of uh, effect on my experiences and viewpoints and things. And our question askers come from everywhere, from all levels of experience, all over the U.S., all kinds of backgrounds. And I think one of the things I have learned from doing this show is that the the developer experience is much broader than what I experience. And before that, I think I just kind of implicitly assumed most people's careers and lives and experiences were kind of similar to mine because that's what I knew. But I think we get more questions from outside the U.S. than inside at this point, which is great. and, And we love it. And just in a question, I learn a lot about work culture outside of the U.S. and and uh, we have this meme on the show that the answer to every solution is quit your job. And that started kind of tongue in cheek. And we've sort of de-emphasized it lately because it's born from a, a like very U.S. tech industry position of privilege, where if you work in Silicon Valley or some um, very, very frothy tech field, like you probably can quit your job and get a new one relatively easily. But most people don't. So that's not actually good advice. If you work in like Indonesia and uh, you're underpaid, but there isn't, uh, there, there's, there's lots of uh, things making it hard to smoothly transition to another job. So I, I would say I have learned how small my viewpoint is and, and expanded it a little bit because of that. I'm interested in one thing that sort of comes out of that, Jameson. I've traveled all over the world and gone to conferences all over the world. I haven't been to Asia, disclaimer. Even like Ruby Kagi in Japan and other places I've been, I don't see the same emphasis on interpersonal skills at conferences outside of the U.S. that we have here. At RailsConf this year, there were two tracks devoted to interpersonal skills and personal development. I went, Yeah, those are great. I've, I've watched a bunch of those. Yeah, and... Um, I don't see the same emphasis on that outside of the U.S., so I think it's really interesting that so much of a demand for discussion and insight about interpersonal skills is coming to your show from outside of the U.S. Maybe I should do some actual counting because I'm just going by my intuition, um, and we don't we don't collect info, so some of it would be inferred from. If they explicitly state where they where they're asking from the question, but I guess my gut feel is just most of them are outside the U.S. And is your question uh, how how to reconcile those things where you don't see the emphasis in the conference scene, but it sounds like there's still interest in that content? Yeah, and what do you do to move that forward? I think you're providing a valuable service to them, but do you think it's just a trailing a trailing demand 
that conference organizers haven't caught up with yet? Or is there some sort of like cultural pressure to not talk about things like that? I think my first answer is I have no idea, right? Like <laughs> I'm American, grew up in the United States. I've lived outside the US, but not for most of my life. So this is all through the lens of like pure speculation. I wonder if some of it is, do you feel like that emphasis on uh, soft skills and interpersonal skills was there from the beginning of the Ruby community? Or, or is it a thing that kind of grew more over time? I think it grew over time. Personally, in my for my speaking career and starting out, like I felt a lot of pressure to give technical talks. I still feel some yeah. pressure to give technical talks just to maintain street cred, right? Um, yep. But most of my talks are about human factors. That's what I find fascinating. And I've found increasing an increasing number of venues who are willing to make space for that here. Um, yeah. I've seen that sometimes at conferences and other places in the world, but never with the same emphasis. So I think that is something we've developed over time as a community, as a Ruby community here, but that is not universal to Ruby. Ruby Kage in Japan doesn't do soft talks. They're all technical talks. And the emphasis... How old is Ruby Kage? How long has um, it been around? Forever. It's been okay. around forever. Yeah. That kind of blows up my hypothesis I was going to propose. I guess my impression is that many tech conferences in the U.S. or kind of the tech conference scene in the U.S. has been around longer in general than lots of places in the world. And maybe there's this um, natural evolution as as people participate in the community and scene for longer that they kind of got the technical stuff. I mean, there's always more to learn, but the interest naturally shifts more to be more soft skills and more interpersonal things. I feel like I've I've seen that a little bit, or not a little bit, quite a bit in the JavaScript community, which is the one I'm the technical community I'm the most active in. There's just as much excitement about a cool story as about a cool framework, but I don't think it was like that ten years ago. Yeah. Um, and I don't know, maybe maybe it's like a as tech communities age outside of the US, that'll increase. But I, I guess I'm making an assumption that they're kind of generally have been around longer in the US than in other countries, and that might not be true. I don't know. I'm kind of reminded of that. uh, You probably remember about a month back, there was an individual who's based, I think, in India, who posted a long thread about 10x developers, and um, people responded to it in a very non-empathetic way, in a very US-centric way, um, because we had had all those conversations seven or eight years ago. And to spell you say that people, myth. you can say Jameson too, because I'm. I think I dogpiled on that person. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, um, yeah, sorry. But I, I think what it highlights is that tech culture is not universal, and that Silicon Valley is not the world. And yeah. uh, I hope that what you said about it being an evolution is true, because you know it's it's a hard one lesson that skills like these are just as important, if not more important, than technical skills alone. And not to say that we figured everything out, we have a long way to go, but I think in the places where I've worked for the most part, that emphasis has been there about a balance, a balance of those skills and brilliant assholes are less likely to be tolerated today than they were eight years ago or whatever. Thank goodness. I don't know. I think the world is better for that. (laughs) I guess that's, that's the implicit belief behind uh, the, the podcast is that it's worth thinking about these things and talking about them. Definitely. Yeah, for me, it's harder to tell that there has been that progression because I I came into the Ruby community 
six or six or seven years ago, right when these sort of things started ramping up and it sort of mimicked my the development of my own understanding of these issues. And so I feel mm-hmm. like they sort of grew with each other. And so for me, I don't have that sense of from before when it wasn't like that, when the conferences were purely technical. But yeah, like Coraline was saying, I, I certainly hope that there's an evolution there that that sort of standard in a technical culture where once it reaches a certain level, um, the conversation switches over to the things that we talk about every day. Yeah. I mean, if you look at like a boot camp, maybe the theme for the show should be Jameson talking about things he doesn't know about because I've never been through a boot camp. But <laughs> my my impression is they focus quite heavily on just the pure technical parts of it because they're coming from zero there and and or not zero all the time, but but usually starting at the beginning of a technical career. And I think they do have some amount of training on interviewing and, and uh, some stuff like that. But it, it seems like there's maybe a certain technical baseline that needs to be established where you need to have that base so that your, your uh, interpersonal skills have more leverage, where if you don't have the, the right baseline of technical skills, being able to communicate very effectively won't matter because you won't have the technical solution to communicate effectively. If that makes sense. Does that seem reasonable? Yeah. And obviously both, both things are important. I think there's a big difference between someone who got a degree in history, can't find a job and decides to go to a boot camp, versus someone who had a previous career and um, is a career switcher because the career switcher has had exposure to the importance of communication, knows how mm-hmm. companies operate. They have those interpersonal skills that they've developed that are 100% portable. And all they have to do is level up technically, as opposed to having to learn everything all at once in order to uh, in order to be successful at the job you just got out of boot camp. I would love to know if there are any studies about it seems like this data would probably be pretty heavily guarded, but I would love to know some kind of studies about things that correlate with success of, of bootcamp grads. And if it does seem likely, I, I feel like I agree with you, Coraline, that career switchers feel like they would be more successful than um, and fresh grads in some other field or something. But someone has to be counting all this stuff, right? Shouldn't the bootcamps be doing that? I would think, yeah, but, but you're probably, probably don't sharing. want to share it. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I, I worked at the online bootcamp block uh, for about four years as a mentor. Uh, it wasn't a full-time gig, but I, I always struggled with uh, wanting to talk about soft skills, you know, throughout the curriculum. It was a three-month program, but, you know, in three months, there's so much technical stuff to learn that there's almost not never enough time to detour into things that aren't like like is this going to get me a job next month yeah questions and and it makes me sad because i really think there's like so many other things that that could be talked about um that will prepare people for for getting into the new job um i'm mentoring a person right now who is out of boot camp and just started her new job uh, a couple of weeks ago and so we've been talking like intensively like we've stopped the technical stuff for a couple of weeks because it's all about like like here's how to have a one-on-one with your manager and this is figure out how your deployments work and this is how you relate to other teams and just like all this day-to-day developer stuff that like no one ever tells you until you're right there in it trying to absorb a million things you know in your first few weeks trying to set up your development environment and learn who is in charge of restocking the coffee in the kitchen or what like whatever and so like i was trying to prepare her with a lot of that 
information so that at least it would be less of a shock. There's a lot more than code, turns out. <laughs> like the, the theme of the show. <laughs> so, Jameson, we talked a little bit about conferences and the emphasis on interpersonal skills, the growing emphasis on interpersonal skills. And I know you're a conference organizer. As mm-hmm. we said in your intro, you you founded React Rally and you mm-hmm. continue to organize that. Do you intentionally set out to balance technical talks with interpersonal talks or is that something you intentionally do or is that something that happens? You said the JavaScript community is coming around to that. What role do you think you as a conference organizer have to play in that? Oh, boy. I got to do some introspection now. I don't think I do that as a conference organizer in talk selection. React Rally is mostly technical talks. I would say it's technical with a side of whimsy or experiment, but we haven't had very many purely communication or soft skills talks. If I think through some of the talks that stick out in my mind, um, one of the ones, was it last year? One of the speakers brought up a tenor, a, uh, sa- I think they played a saxophone or flute of some kind, and then a, a bass player and went through the documentation of React and had them improvise music live on stage that reflected his impressions of what the like, different lifecycle hooks of React components were. And that was my jam. Like, it's kind of weird. It's kind of different. It's not like a thing you could easily learn by reading a blog post. It's showing personality and showing the, the more human side of a person while, while still kind of delivering useful technical content. I think that's kind of the niche that React Rally is in. We're a single track conference. So some of it is, is the size of the, um, the, the amount of slots we have. But some of it, I think, is just, yeah, I'm struggling to reconcile these two things now. Why don't I have more technical or more, more uh, soft skills talks? I don't know. Hmm. Maybe we will next year now. <laughs> I think the, the part of the goal with React Rally is focused on the experience attendees will have. And in my mind, the talks are only a part of that experience. And the the feeling of the conference is from a lot more than the talks. It's from the communication that comes out from the conference about uh, buying tickets and, and attending and what kind of things you're agreeing to do and not do when you come to the conference. It's around the activities that you have there. And I, I think you can nudge groups of people to behave differently by setting them up in the right environment. So we value people making connections and friendships. And one of the ways we do that is by having really, really long breaks in the conference. And for example, lunch, you don't sit in a ca- in a, in a, in an auditorium and eat kind of uh, box lunches or whatever. We um, send people out into the city and, and tell them a kind of a list of restaurants to go to. And then they just go and, and make friends and chat for a couple hours there. Or when they're in the venue during breaks, we have little like icebreaker things. It's, it's stuff to do. So you don't hopefully have to experience the awkwardness of walking up to a group of people that you don't know and saying, Hey, uh, how about, <laughs> how about that JavaScript program? <laughs> so I, I think we're trying to create a feeling of community and openness in the experience of attending and talks are part of that. But part of it is, is all of the stuff around the talks too. Does that make sense? Oh, certainly. Yeah, it's a definitely more than just like a conference is, is more than just the talks. And certainly as I've gotten more experienced with conferences, I, I end up going to fewer and fewer talks. Um, yeah. Just 
exploiting the hallway track and really doing like you said, using it to form connections and meet new people and um, build up my community rather than uh, just cramming technical stuff into my head, which I can do by watching the videos after. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're trying to formalize the hallway track is maybe a way to put it where we're trying yeah. to make it acceptable and clear um, and, and comfortable to people that might not naturally just walk out into a group and make friends without, without nudges. But maybe one thing I've taken away from this is that there could be more opportunity. I, th- I think in JavaScript, at least, the more general JavaScript conferences feel like they uh, have a, a bit more focus on purely non-technical talks, where if I think of JSConf uh, in its various iterations, there's there's always several talks there that are not even related to JavaScript. It's just kind of at the JavaScript conference. But the more framework-focused conferences seem to be a little bit more technical in nature. So maybe some of that is we're kind of the, we, have, we have the DNA of a framework in our in our conference talk or in our conference. Something I'll think about after this, though. Yeah, I've certainly noticed that when looking at just conferences that I want to submit my talks to, that like it seems like those more frameworky conferences tend to be more technical, and it kind of makes sense. Yeah, in that it's the topic is much much smaller. Yeah, and then you were talking about the, the difficulty of of just walking up to people and saying <laughs> and starting that conversation. Like it, it definitely took me years and years and years to have the ability to do that. And and I have like a couple of slots in my brain every day per conference that I can do that. And then like once they're yeah. mixed up, I have I do not have the energy for it. You have some tokens um, to spend. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I feel that very deeply. Yeah, it doesn't come naturally. I'm not I'm not naturally uh, outgoing with strangers. So that's actually probably one of the biggest benefits of organizing the conference is people come up to talk to me. So I don't have to use up the <laughs> the introvert slots to go meet people at a conference. And it's great because I still get to make connections, but I don't have to spend as much time like overcoming that fear of what if I open my mouth and just like shriek obscenities on accident instead of introduce myself. I don't know, whatever weird stuff I'm afraid of. Yeah, um, speaking is great for that too, is you just become someone that people have seen before. And so there's that, it's, it's just easier to approach. Yeah, we actually, we talk about that at the conference too, where we we try to encourage speaker choice, I guess is a big theme where we don't have Q&A, but we let the speakers know if, hey, if you if you want to talk to people and kind of talk about your talk, announce that and then go mingle in the hallway in the hallway track. And if you don't, that's fine. Like you can just go uh, go hang out in the speaker lounge or go to your room or whatever. But hopefully that means that speakers that want to engage that way feel very comfortable to do so. And they can do it in a way they control instead of, uh, I don't know, I, I have feelings about speaker QA on stage. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I refuse to <laughs> do them anymore because I... Yeah. I got the, this is more of a statement than a question. I also had one experience that was so bizarre where uh, I was doing Q&A and this happened like with three people in a row standing up to ask a question and somebody in the audience answered the question instead of me. Yeah. That was just so bizarre. I think there's more ways for it to go wrong than right and the skill set of handling live Q&A is not necessarily the skill set we want to select for when picking speakers. Like there, there are people that could just crush it and smoothly deal with anything that comes up, but you shouldn't need to, <laughs> to speak at a conference. So 
Yeah, I've had luck um, as a speaker. If the conference has uh, like BOF sessions, birds of a feather or open spaces or something in like setting up my talk as a topic for one of those areas so that I can mm-hmm. just be like office hours, come talk to me more. And, there, you know, I'm around and, you know, just make it super approachable for people to have um, um, more of a discussion about whatever I was talking about. Yeah, there was one conference. I'm sure they didn't invent this idea, but one recently, I think it was React Day, where they had, it, it was kind of Birds of a Feather, but they, they had uh, like moderators for them. Is that common in Birds of a Feather sessions? Or are they more ad hoc? I think some of the open spaces are set up that way, but I would imagine there's variation in how people think those need to run. Sure, but basically they had moderators for several topics picked out and then tables. And then you could say like, I want to go talk about Reason ML. And there's there's a couple people that, are friendly and knowledgeable about reason that are hopefully guiding an interesting discussion instead of just like, Hey, everybody who cares about reason, walk over to that corner and then see what happens. I thought that was pretty interesting. I guess a theme with conferences is that there are lots of great ideas out there and it's fun to look around and think of things that um, might or might not work at your events. That's one of the benefits of the proliferation of developer events is there's there's a lot of people thinking really hard about this and, and you have a lot of examples to look from and and freedom to design, like pick the, the parts that you think are interesting and, and would work and not the parts that you don't. I've really enjoyed this conversation and thinking back a, f- a few things that stuck out to me were, uh, so I Googled zone of proximal development. I think that's the thing Coraline was talking about, about kind of the comfortable path of learning things close, but not too, not too hard, close to your current skill set. That was very interesting to me. The discussion about career growth as a developer and, and the trade-offs between title inflation and, and skill growth and how you manage those is also something I'll be thinking about a lot. Thanks for bringing those things to my attention. We've had a great time talking to you, Jameson. I think uh, we all learned something. I really appreciated your insight as an engineering manager, as well as as a conference organizer and as a human being. It's been really great to have you on the show. I appreciate it so much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been really great. And uh, if you want to hear Jameson talk more, you can check out the Soft Skills Engineering Podcast. Thanks, everybody. We'll talk to you soon.